turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15. All right, while you guys are looking for your Bibles, I, I got a question here. How many of you have forgot something important in your life? I, I, I just want to make sure I'm not, really, not many of you, a few of you. All right, well, let me see if I can just kind of jog your memory a little bit here. Um, anybody ever, like, lose your keys or your wallet or your all-important phone? Okay, remember how unpleasant that was? Just, uh, you know, like you have to get somewhere, but you can't find your keys. Okay, you know, and all of a sudden that, that kind of sends your world into turmoil. Um, how many of you have experienced this sensation where you forgot to do your homework or forgot that there was a test that you anybody had that? It's just like this sheer panic that just kind of goes over. And I have found it takes years to get over that. I mean, even though I've been out of college a long time and I'm not going to get into my attendance record at college classes or anything like that, but I, I still would every once in a while wake up and go, oh, I'm late for class or I'm taking a test and I've never studied or whatever. Okay, those things just kind of grip you and you forget something important. Um, have you ever done this where you forgot someone special's birthday? Remember how well that went over? Or remember the realization like, oh, no, okay? Or have you ever forgot like someone special's anniversary, like your own, huh? Okay, no, 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 hey, none of that. Hitting the elbow, the, no, to the ribs, no, no, yeah. Okay, all right. Yes, so we've experienced that. How many of you, how many of you have forgot your kids somewhere? Is it, okay, am I? No, sir, okay, thank you very much back there in the back. Okay, I, I just, we, we want to confess, this has happened in our home, okay? Like, for instance, uh, our dear little Cameron has been left at the YMCA, and I want you to know that it, he was, that was realized within about 10 or 15 minutes, and he was retrieved within 45 minutes, you know, and, but all of a sudden you're like, wait, something's missing. You know, it's four kids and all the chaos and little friends and stuff there, and you got them all packed in their van and car seats and music and everything going on. It's easy to do. And you, and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, we have forgot something extremely important. Now, for us, we don't even count. If you leave them at the church here, like, that doesn't count, okay? That just happens that frequently, and I know I'm not alone, okay? I know that I'm not going to mention names, although I did say, hey, this will work into a great sermon someday. Uh, I'm not going to call you out. I do see you there, and you put your Bible in front of your face. Okay, I know this happens to very fine people, but you forget things like your kids, things that mean something to you. And what happens is that we just get distracted, okay? And so, But we're good at excuses. And so when we're older and we forget something important, what do we call it? We call it a senior moment, right? That's a senior moment. Okay, that's like the big pass for everything. That was a senior moment. I forgot about that. And then, but when you're younger, we don't have something called a junior moment. We just blame it on our kids. Hey, okay, the reason I can't remember things or I'm half crazy, it's because my kids. And that's why I forgot all this stuff here. And so, what do you do, though, as soon as you realize you forgot something important? What do you do? Why, you either go find it or you get it fixed as soon as possible. Because when you realize that there's something of significance that is wrong or it's missing or I forgot something, you try to resolve the issue as soon as possible. And it's really interesting. We do we forget things that are important pretty frequently. And here's something. We actually forget what is most important rather often. I don't know why it is, but God knows that we forget things that are most important. Like, for instance, we forget why in the world we are here. We don't think about it. We forgot about it. I, I, if I ask you, hey, why are you here? You're like, uh, my car brought me here. My wife drove me here. You don't. Do you know why in the world 
you were here. God, he made us. Do you know that he's pretty familiar with our memory lapses and our inability to remember the things that are most important? And that is why God has actually done two things. One, he has given us a record of the things that are most important. We call it the Bible. And he intends for us to be regularly going through it and understanding what is most important because he's had it written right here. The other thing God does, because our father is a good father and every good father repeats the things that are most important, right? You do that in your parenting? The things that are most important, you repeat over and over. Well, guess what? God does the same thing. In fact, when we come to Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 29, we're going to find that he is going to repeat that which is most important, specifically why we're here, how we are to live, and how we are to go about it. We, uh, let me ask you, remember when we went through in Matthew 14 about the feeding of the 5,000 men, not counting the women and children? How long do you think it took for Jesus' key men, his disciples, to forget the lessons that he taught them? The answer, one chapter. It's estimated it took maybe about a month, but this significant miracle, this significant life lesson was perhaps almost completely forgotten by Christ's disciples within just a matter of days. And you're like, oh, leave it to the disciples. They're just such losers. They always forget things. They forget the most important things. They, have, they doubt, you know, like when they're walking on water. And they, you know, uh, I wish I could tell you, like, I got this down cold. I never forget what is most important. I don't forget how I'm to live. But you know what? The reality is I forget pretty frequently. And what happens, I'm faced with things that are difficult, perhaps even overwhelming. And you just start like, whoa, what, how am I going to go through this? Or what, what am I supposed to do? And, and it's very easy to forget. What I have to do is I have to go back to this passage. I have to get reminded why I'm here and how I'm to live. And that's what he does when we come to Matthew 15. You see, you and I, we have to know why we are here because it is critical for us to fulfill what God's will is for our life. We have to have it crystal clear why we're here and how we are to live. So in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 29, we have a situation where Jesus now, as he's been up in Tyre and Sidon, this is along the Mediterranean coast. These are powerful port cities. They are very Gentile, non-Jewish in nature. Jesus is spending time up there. He has done a significant miracle with this healing of this demonically possessed child with this Syrophoenician woman just coming and pleading her case and is literally casting her problems right at the feet of Jesus. Well, from Tyre and Sidon, verse 29, they depart from there. And Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. Now, Mark records in Mark chapter 7, this is the very same uh, event that takes place. They leave Tyre and Sidon. They actually go and they travel on to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Some people, scholars believe that the reason that Jesus is going now on the east side, which is all Gentile country, is that he is seeking to avoid Herod Antipas. Remember Herod Antipas? He's the real neat guy that you find in Matthew chapter 14 that beheads John the Baptist, the prophet announcing the Messiah. And so some think that Jesus is going just to avoid, he's staying out of Herod Antipas' jurisdiction. 
But there's something perhaps much more profound. First of all, Jesus is not afraid of Herod Antipas. Jesus is communicating he is the Messiah, not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles alike. And he makes his way all the way across on that east side to the lower section, which is called the Decapolis. And actually, Mark 7:31 actually names that this is where Jesus goes. Decapolis, you know what Deca means, 10. It was 10 cities, okay? These were actually, they weren't even part of the Roman Empire. They were 10 Gentile cities. After Alexander the Great died, about 323 B.C., these 10 cities started to flourish. They had their own army. They had their own money. They had their own court system. There were temples and, uh, and artifacts and um, statues of Zeus and Aphrodite all around. They had, Ro- they had these like Roman-like coliseums for like Roman entertainment. And this was a heavily Gentile place. This would feel very foreign to Jewish people. Jesus and Jesus' men had never been deep into the Decapolis territory. The Jesus disciples literally just felt completely uncomfortable. Everything would be foreign. They would have felt like fish out of water. They would have felt like our team right now in India feels like, whoa, what in the world is this? Everything is so very different. Well, he makes his way, and they're in the Decapolis. Jesus sits down, having gone up the mountain. He's sitting down. This is the position of a teacher, and he is going to teach and instruct these Gentiles. And verse 30, and large crowds came to him. That's how just, just like Jesus. People can sense that he loves them. He has wisdom. He addresses the real issues in their life. And large crowds are coming to him in verse 30 and bringing with them those who were lame, crippled. This, this word has the idea that like your limb not only doesn't work like it might be deformed or mangled, but it might even be missing. Blind, you can't see. People walking in literal darkness in the middle of the day. The mute and many others. And they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. Can you imagine? You see, these people, they, they'd heard of the miracles of Jesus. A few of them experienced it. Here is one who can speak to our greatest needs and he can address these great physical issues that we have. And so they brought all of these people, the lame, the sick, people that perhaps had never seen or never spoke. And they bring them and literally they lay them at the, these people at the feet of Jesus. And couldn't you hear it? Just like that Syrophoenician woman crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. Please help me. I am in anguish. I am fully incapable of doing anything about my condition or the condition of my child. And Jesus, he'd heal. All of a sudden, someone who is blind can now see. Can you imagine just the shrill excitement, the words, people that perhaps were put, brought there on a pallet, now all of a sudden their leg is restored. And they're, they're walking, jumping, weeping, crying out. Praising God, holding on to Jesus' robe, you can just see tears. And see, at the same time, you have people crying out for help. At the same time, Jesus is performing these healings, touching people, healing them. There's great joy and also great cries at the exact same time. And look at verse 31. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is just another key that we're in Gentile country. 
You see, these people in the Decapolis, they had lots of gods. They had a pantheon of gods. They had all sorts of gods that were just like them. Wicked. Uh, immoral. Now, they didn't question whether there was a God in Israel. They, that's fine. Lots of gods. Israel, sure, they should have a God too, right? They should have lots of gods. That was one of their problems. They only have one. They knew about the God of Israel. But now they know that the power of the God of Israel is far greater than anything they've ever experienced. That their God, could he do a healing? Could their God speak such wisdom? Absolutely not. And what's taking place here is that Jesus, who is God incarnate, God in the flesh, the eternal Son of God who's existed from all eternity, he is now in their midst. And he is authenticating that indeed he is the promised Messiah to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he has the power to back it up. And so he is bringing about these healings. In fact, he's fulfilling a prophecy. Like remember in Isaiah chapter 35, beginning in verse 5, Isaiah writes of Messiah and he says this. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And that's what's happening. They are praising the God of Israel. It is marvelous. And, you know, this is so interesting. How did the Pharisees, how did the Jewish leaders respond when Jesus did these miracles? Do you remember Matthew chapter 12? What, what did they say? Hey, we can't deny that you're healing people like this. We can't deny that you've cast out demons. But we can say this, what you do, you do by the power of the devil himself. And what they did is they assigned Jesus to be in league with Satan. On the other hand, the Gentiles, when they saw miracles of the same magnitude, not just like, I have a headache and Jesus made me feel better. I was really tired. He touched me. I'm, I'm feeling better. No, no, come on. Things that are absolutely undeniable. One that can't walk, now can. Can't see, can't speak, now can. What they did is they rejoiced. In fact, they glorified the God of Israel. They worshipped Christ, Messiah, and the God of Israel. Well, this apparently took place for several days. And in verse 32, and Jesus called his disciples to him. There is a massive crowd. We're going to find out that it's numbered at least 4,000 men, not counting all the women and children that would come as Jesus is teaching and he's healing. I mean, this is just like, it seemed like almost pandemonium with the cries for help and the rejoicing of those who have been healed and people just literally holding on to Jesus, just overwhelmed. They're glorifying the God of Israel. And Jesus calls his men because Jesus is always training the 12. As you go through the gospel of Matthew, you'd never miss this. Jesus is always involved in training his men to continue on his work when he is gone. And that is critically important to what is going to happen next. He brings them together. He calls his disciples to him and he said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. You see that word compassion? It literally speaks from like his 
the bowels of his stomach area. He is gripped from his heart, from the depth of his being. I feel compassion. I love these people. They are my people. I am so gripped that I have a loving concern for them and I am moved to action. Oftentimes, God is presented like he's just totally removed and could care less about all the pains and the problems of people. But that is not who God is. If you look at the Old Testament and you start reading through the New Testament, you see that God absolutely is in love and compassionate toward people. His people, even those who are yet to be his people, who have truly come to worship him and to know him. He is a God who gives rain to the just and the unjust. He is compassionate. He is moved to action. And he says, I am moved by compassion. Matthew picked up on the heart of Jesus, and we must. As we've gone through the gospel, do you notice the different times where it says that Jesus moved with compassion? Like, for instance, when Jesus saw all the people and they were like with sheep without a shepherd, it says this. He felt compassion for them. They were distressed and they were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And that's where he said, he said to his disciples, do this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to provide workers for the harvest. I'm concerned. I care. I don't want people walking around aimless without like sheep that without a shepherd, walking amongst wolves, getting beat up and trashed and and destroyed. I care. And so you pray that the Lord of the harvest will raise up workers. And you're like, well, that's just pastors. Uh Uh-uh. That is all of us. God intends for his people to minister to the needs of others. Shepherds. That's very well what God is creating in you. A desire to move past just you to now include others. To care. To minister to break, for, break from the walls of self-centeredness to a Christ-centered orientation. He says, I move by compassion. It was by compassion. That's why he healed. And Jesus, he sees that they're hungry. He says, I'm moved by compassion. We need to do something about this. Now, why would Jesus, Jesus cares about whether people are hungry or fed? Come on, there's much more important things, Right? We think like, well, Jesus is only concerned about spiritual issues, namely that they they know him. Is he concerned about that? Absolutely. Is Jesus concerned about your physical ailment? The fact that you're having trouble walking or your cancer issue. Some of the horrific issues of just broken health. Sadness we face. Does he really care? Absolutely. You see, that's why he brought healing to these people. And you know what? One day we will all be healed, whether in this life or in the life to come. And Jesus will do it. But does he care about the starving? Does he care about the people that don't have food? Does he care about your actual needs? Absolutely. Now, mind you, Jesus does miracles to authenticate who he is. But he's done plenty of miracles. Does he have to do another one to authenticate? No. They already know who he is. They're already glorifying the God of Israel. He is moved by compassion. And so he intends to act.
It says, I don't want them to go away hungry. It's not the, uh, that they hadn't had any food for three days. It's just that now their food resources are exhausted. And he said, verse 33 to them, all right, guys, uh, what are you going to do about it? And the disciples said to him, well, where, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? Obviously, they're in between some of these ten cities. It's desolate. This is far worse off than Bethsaida. And they're like, uh, Jesus, I don't know if you notice this, but this is pretty desert. Like, how what, we can't do this. We don't have any resources. This is way beyond us. We could never produce enough bread to satisfy a crowd like this. And then Jesus says, well, verse 34, he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Well, since you've already told me that you can't do something, well, what is it that you do have? What, what, what do you have that you can offer to this cause to try to meet this incredible need? And you could just see them looking at each other. Okay, this is, this is bad. But they said to him, we've got seven, seven loaves. We've got a few small fish. And when they're talking about loaves, don't get the idea of like these massive 10-foot Subway sandwich loaves. Okay? These are little barley biscuits. Okay? And when they talk about fish, don't be thinking, well, it's, it's good that they have these like giant whales that they brought along. No. These are like sardine-type size. This is the food of the poor people. Little pickled herring. and they, That's all we have. A few fish, we've got these seven loaves. What in the world is this for so many? Jesus could see they forgot why they are here and how he intends to work through them. And so it's time for a retraining, a repeat of a lesson that they had forgotten. Verse 35, he directed the people to sit down on the ground. This should have triggered something. Remember, last time he said, all right, go put them in groups, 50 and 100, right? This time Jesus does. Can't you see? He has everyone sit down on the ground. And verse 36, he took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks. This is what Jewish people would do. Whatever they had with their food before they ate it, they would give thanks. They oftentimes did this standing and looking to heaven because they realized what they had had been given to them by God, whether it was a feast or it was seven little biscuits and a few fish. He lifts them up and he gives thanks. It's a good idea. It always reminds you where you got your food. We think we get our food from our refrigerator, right? Like just, and I earned it and I made it. It was my food. No, this has been given to you by God. And just even a simple prayer of giving thanks always not only honors him, but reminds you that you received it from him. He gave thanks, and then he broke them. And he started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. It was started with seven He's breaks but it's miraculously it was like these barley loaves were just completely just being 
created right in his midst. This was creation power right there. He breaks it. He keeps handing it off to these disciples. You've got to see the disciples are like, oh, we've seen this before, but they're all kind of like, whoa, it's happening again. The food is just coming miraculously out of the hands of Jesus, and he just keeps handing it to his men. They're, they got their food, and they're like putting it in their cloak, like, whoa. And they, have, and they go, and they start feeding it to the people. And he does the same with the fish, and they're making their way to the people. I'm like, can't you see all these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people? They'd already seen these amazing miracles but now they're realizing that this Jesus, he's the bread of life. He could provide physical bread. There must be something about him that is essential to life. Who is this that cares about us? Now, you remember, Jewish people, what did they think of the Gentiles? They called them dogs, right? Beasts that ran around that are uncontrolled, right? They just mean Hated them. Wouldn't touch them. If they walked in Gentile country, they wiped the dust from their feet. They hated the Gentiles. And the Gentiles knew it. And they kind of, hey, you treat us like that. You treat us bad, we can treat you bad, right? So they kind of, but here's Jesus. They know he's Jewish. They know him. They know his men. And he cares. And he's providing all this food. And the disciples are coming and they're receiving this. And he keeps just giving to them one after another. He keeps bringing food and then what happens when you pass out all your food and you don't have anything left and you got you got thousands of people looking at you like, whoa, I need some of that. What do you do when you're faced with great need and you have no resources? Anybody know? Have we all forgot? We just covered this just a chapter ago. When you're empty, you go back to the source of life. You go back to Jesus and so that's what they do. Uh, hold on. And they go, uh, geez. and there's Jesus. And he's passing out more food. You see what he's doing? He is training his men. This is how the ministry will continue when I am no longer here. You come to me. I will give you what you need in the hour in which you need it so that you will be able to meet the needs of the people. But I care, I want you to care, and I intend to do my work through you. So when you are empty, you come back to me. And friends, that is how the ministry continues today. When you're empty, when you've given your heart, when you're whipped, when you're tired, when you face hardship, like the people that we've been praying for around the world, face great persecution, when you feel empty, what do you do? When you are asked to lead a Sunday school class or work with our kids or work at the college ministry or to teach or disciple or to work with your own children and you don't have the resources to do it, what do we need to do? You go back to Jesus. And now, we know it, we see it, but you know what? There's something, I have a feeling if this is true for me, it's true for you. There's something in me that doesn't want to do it. It's something in my flesh See, my flesh likes to be self-sufficient. I can live, live as if there is no God. I can do it. I can handle it. I got the education. I've done things like this before. No, the Spirit always beckons us. Come and drink from the well of Christ. Otherwise, you're going to try to give things that you don't have. You need to be replenished and you need to be ref, uh, refilled and Jesus is teaching his men this is how the ministry will be done. It'll be not by might, but not by power, but by my spirit. But you, you come to me. 
I intend to feed the masses physically, spiritually. I intend to do it through you, but you come to me. Some of you know uh, Chuck Swindoll. He's on the radio. Some of you have read some of his books. He recounted uh, an experience where he went and visited a missionary friend overseas. And when he got there, uh, his missionary friend was, wasn't even there. He, he was in the office, spoke with his, the wife of his friend, who he knew quite well. And she said, it ain't good. He is totally discouraged. It is so hard here. Things aren't going well. And by the way, if you're thinking that was isolated, if you're a missionary, if you're a pastor, all of you and I look around here and you got ministries, you know what I'm talking about. It gets real hard. It can get real disappointing real fast because you're working with people. They all got their own agendas and sometimes they're like, wow, Lord, am I just wasting my time here? Spinning my wheels or furthermore, this is hard. This suffering that you called me to, I, I'm not sure I wanted this. She said, it's not good. He's down in his office. So he, Chuck uh, Swindoll, makes his way into town. He's going to go to the man's office. And what do you do when you got someone who's just all beat up and ready to give up, right? You're going to try to encourage him, right? Well, he, he's going and he, and he looks in the window and there's uh, his friend. He expected to find his friend just despondent, you know, just like writing his letter of resignation. I'm going to go dig ditches. I think it'll be more productive for the kingdom. Or whatever. No, he looked and there was his friend and he was reading from the Psalms and he was singing hymns of praise. And he just said, I just I stood there and just kept looking through the window because this is how you are replenished. When you have nothing left to give. This is the nature of ministry. When you're beat up, you're ready to give up. When you feel down and out. When you don't see progress. When in fact it seems like things are going in the wrong direction. To go back to the source of life, God will renew you. He'll renew your perspective. He'll refresh you with the fact that he's God and he's greater than your problem. He'll remind you that he's sovereign, that he's in control, that he's good, that he's great, that he is compassionate to the lost and he is compassionate to your need. And you are refreshed by the presence of God and you re-engage. Where do we learn that? We learn it from the feeding of the 4,000. You return when you are empty. You see, God is able to give us all that we need to accomplish all that he's asked. He just wants us to come to him. All these men, they're feeding. It's like one after another in verse 38. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Matthew writes this at the end because he literally wants all of us, every reader, just be like, what? 4,000 men, not even counting the women and children. This Jesus, not only is he fully God, but he is fully able and he is deeply concerned about the needs of people. Friends, he's going to send them away with a little reminder. He sends them away. Look at verse 37. When they all ate and were satisfied and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, there were what? Seven large baskets full. Remember last time there were 12 baskets. Well, those are the baskets that Jewish people and they could, would use and they would hold maybe up to two to three meals. 
These baskets that are referred to here, these were the baskets that Gentiles used. Uh, They were very large. In fact, Paul was let down in a basket. Remember that in Damascus? These are huge, massive baskets. Jesus has his men then go pick up all the leftovers. They started off with seven loaves. They have, after feeding everybody, they got seven huge baskets full of food. Why? I mean, if Jesus, he could just create more food. Why, Why picking up the extra food, putting it in the baskets? He wants them to have a reminder. He wants them to remember this lesson. I am able, I care, I am concerned, and the ministry will be accomplished when you come to me. You don't do the miracle, I do the miracle. I'll give you what you need. And these baskets that they carried around with them, they're a reminder of this critical mission that God is going to use his people to accomplish his ministry. And you know what the prayer of the Lord's servant is? It's just this. The servant's prayer is, Lord, would you just please do your work through me? It's not, Lord, I want to do great things for you. Lord, I want to be real popular and successful to make you look good. I'll I'll definitely include this. Uh, I'll be a real good athlete or help me be real successful in my business or whatever. And and I'll somehow kind of give you credit for it when it is convenient. No, none of that. No pretense. You just say, Lord, just, just do your work through me, whatever that might be. And there is no work insignificant in his kingdom. Whether it's working with just your children, in your job, in your school, Lord, just do your work through me. And so they have this amazing lesson. And you see, what Jesus is doing, he's showing that the goal of ministry is that God is going to accomplish his work through his people. But you've got to remember why you and I are here. Have you wondered why you're here? You're here to experience the power of Christ working in your life to accomplish his will in this world. He wants us gripped. He doesn't want us just sitting in chairs like another message. And I just go home and it's on to the Cowboys. And then I'm thinking about my next meal. We've got to break out of the pattern. Nothing wrong with the Cowboys. Nothing wrong with eating. I'm all for it. But he wants us gripped with his eternal kingdom purposes. And it will be done his way. And it is as simple as you find here in the text. You see, it would be possible for Jesus to accomplish his ministry through his people for these two reasons. One, he would die for them. Anything that brought about alienation, their sin, Christ actually paid for so he could reconcile people to himself. And not only does Christ die for his people, and when he does so, he does so to demonstrate his love without compromising his justice. Someone's got to pay for your sin and my sin. He doesn't like, well, we'll just pretend that didn't happen. No. All this stuff is running through your head and the things that you said and those things that you've done with your hand and your body. It's all wretched before a holy God. And you know what he does? He says, my son will bear your sins in his body on the cross. And so he pays for it. He cleanses it. If you're here and you're trying to investigate Christianity, you need to know this. You're sitting next to major failures, great sinners. The only thing perfect about us is our Savior. He dies for us so that we who believe may find that he lives in us. He's going to live his life through his people. And this is his disciple-making strategy. We can think of it this way. 
CPR. You guys familiar with that? CPR. CPR is helpful because it can bring life to dead people. Well, this is what Jesus' kind of disciple-making strategy in short was. He would cultivate the soil of hearts. He'd raise awareness. He'd build a desire, interest, like a salt block does the cattle. It makes them thirsty. Well, he's like creating interest because they see the loveliness and the greatness and the concern and the compassion of Christ. He cultivates the soil of their hearts. And once he does so, then you know what he does? He plants the seeds of truth. He plants the gospel. He plants truth about life, about sin, about eternity, about God, about relationships. He plants truth in hearts. And what happens when seeds get planted in the ground? They have a tendency to grow and to flourish, and they eventually reap fruit that is life-giving. It reaps fruit in your personal life. It reaps fruit in reaching the loss and discipling those who have come to Christ. And that is a strategy, C-P-R. But Jesus, friends, is very interested in all of us bearing fruit, both individually and collectively. You might want to consider Jesus as the ultimate farmer. Remember when we were looking in Luke chapter, or Matthew chapter 13, when he gave the parable of the sower? What was Jesus really concerned about? That we would have hearts that would understand, that would love him and follow him, and that he would bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. You know, if you know a farmer, you know that a farmer is most concerned about what? Producing fruit from the ground that can be harvested. Yeah, there's a lot of fun things about farming, you know, driving around on the tractor, right? Firing up the four-wheeler, going down the shed, fixing things that are broke, fixing the fence, all those things that are all great. Playing around in the shop, listening to the radio. But you know what? That is not the goal of farming. The goal of farming is fruit, right? And God wants us to be interested in what he's interested. Him bearing fruit through our lives. And you know what happens? He bears fruit through the root of a rich relationship with Christ that flourishes. Now, God intends to bear fruit through our lives and through our ministry. Let me just tell you how this is possible. First of all, it's possible because Christ has called us to make disciples of all the nations. This is possible when we are making sure we are resting and trusting in the grace of God. God wants us to be about his work. Do you know where it begins? It begins and continues when we are resting in him, in his finished work. Our confidence is not in ourselves, in our good looks, our ability. Our confidence is that God himself will do the work. In fact, through his finished work on the cross, the work of the kingdom is even possible. Let me also tell you, accomplishing God's work of seeing disciples made of all the nations means that we've got to be maturing in our faith in Christ. Let me just tell you how this works. When you and I are growing in our relationship with Christ, his concern and his heart becomes ours. And so as you mature, you grow, you read, you pray, you investigate, you invest. What happens is you grow and mature, and you mature in your faith. And then the other thing is that we need to make sure we are majoring on making disciples who do the same. How do you know when you've got a mature disciple in Christ? Well, the same way you know you got a you got a mature tree when it's producing fruit that in itself that fruit when planted could reproduce. When you have people that have moved beyond self 
to all of Christ, where Christ is bearing fruit through their life, where they're actually concerned that fruit is, is born in the life of another, you've got maturity starting to take place. And so, friends, I just want you to know, at Fellowship, what you see in this text, this is what we're about. You've got in your bulletin this morning, uh, we have a couple of cards here. In this brown card here, it's got our mission and it's got our distinctive features. I just want to make sure you're crystal clear if you're new here. Like you're like, what is Fellowship Bible Church about? What is God doing here? I talked to a lady yesterday and she said she's heard really good things about our church. So what is this church? Well, our mission is very simple. You can find it on the back here. Our mission is glorifying God by living out the life we have in Christ. We're here for the exaltation of God by living out his life, the life of Christ being lived out in our own. That, that life, that is an acronym for loving God, investing in others, following his word, and engaging our world. That is what the life looks like. That life is experienced as we are in relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ himself. Now, with that mission, our church has a very simple vision. It's got four words in it. I'd, want, I'd really want everyone in our church to know our mission and our vision. Our vision is growing deep and reaching out. Think of it this way. Are you, uh, are you familiar with an orchard? Okay. Now, an orchard, if you've got a healthy orchard, you have what? Healthy trees. So if we're talking about like an apple orchard, and it's producing a lot of apples, what do you know? Well, you know that there's a lot of mature trees that are producing fruit. That fruit then can actually be reproduced in others where you have more and more trees. Those trees can bear more fruit. And you've got life, vitality. Well, that simple vision is the vision of Fellowship Bible Church. And you can find it. If you turn that card over here, you can also see it up on our screens here. Our, our vision is very simple. It is growing deep and reaching out. You see, the equivalent of what you have, as far as what you see above ground, is found underneath the ground in the root system. If you have a tree that is not bearing fruit, do you start pulling on the branches like, come on, you got to grow? And does that, does that work? No. What do you need to do? You need to cultivate the roots. We oftentimes get this backward. We just want to see fruit. And so we're like, we're focused on the top part of the tree, which you can see. But you know where the fruit is born? It actually starts from the roots, the part that you can't see. And so at Fellowship, we want all of us, each of us as individuals and all of us collectively, to grow deep in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when you look at this, this root system, there's various aspects of that. There's a, there is, first of all, like the taproot, just your own personal time with God. That is, when you spend time with God, your roots mature and develop because his word becomes part of your DNA, part of the fabric of your being. And then there's a large group where it's kind of like the core root. Like when we're here, what this does is it helps you grow and develop. By the way, that is one of the reasons why we go through books of the Bible. We want God to bring transformation through his revelation. And then there's different aspects like personal discipleship. If you're involved in the life of another where someone can speak to the details of your life to encourage you, pray with you, hold you accountable, you grow. And if that's absent in your life, it's kind of like not feeding the root what it really needs. There's small groups, like another one of these major arteries. When you're involved with other believers, it stimulates growth. Or when you're involved in a church ministry, when, God, when you see God using you, there is just something electric about that. 
and it stimulates growth and depth. And what happens when a root system is growing? Then you got the top part of the tree. It starts getting manifested like in personal character. When someone is maturing in their faith in Christ, it bears the fruit like it says in Galatians 5 of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Where does this come from? It comes from God's spirit working through within. As the roots are cultivated, God is bringing life, life that is meant to be life-giving. But there's also fruit appears like in your family. Your relationships are different. You do things that you perhaps never did before. Like this morning, I had to apologize to one of my kids for overreacting on a situation. Not a big deal. I didn't learn that in my home. I've not seen that modeled in my family experiences. But I do see it written in the Word. God moves me to, like, this ain't going to be easy, but I'm going to do it. Why? Because God wants to manifest fruit in my life, in my family, in our church ministry. We present to you opportunities to be involved for your growth and for, his, for the life and for the glory of God. When you, when you're like, whoa, when you're moved to action, fruit is born. When you have one-to-one discipleship, we talk about it all the time, but when you say, you know what? I think I'm going to take this younger guy or this gal and I'm going, to, I'm going to spend some time and invite him to lunch. Fruit is being born. When you see it like an opportunity to be involved in our community and you step forth, whether it's helping the poor or at Karenet or wherever it might be or just even your neighbor, it's fruit that's being born. When our church and you as an individual is, group, is gripped about the concerns of the world, like the six people that just left on Friday for India, you know what happens? Fruit is being born for the glory of God. And so our vision is simple. It's, it's simply this. It's growing deep so that we'll be reaching out. And this morning when you leave, you're going to be handed something that is meant to remind you that God intends to bear fruit through your life, through the rich relationship with Christ. You know, when we eat like an apple, what do we usually do with the seeds and the inside, the core? What do we usually do? We throw it away. But do you know that those seeds have the potential of giving life? God intends spiritually that the fruit he bears in our life is planted in the life of another so that it will also bear fruit and it will continue. And the health of the orchard is determined by the health of the trees. The health of Fellowship Bible Church is determined by the individual health of every believer. When you got sorry health and people that are not really concerned about their spiritual life and are not yielded to the Lordship of Christ, you got some pretty sad parts in your orchard that need special attention. On the other hand, and praise God, we see so much of this. You have people that are in love with the Lord. They're like, they're growing. They get it. They're involved. They're, they're human, yes. But they're in love with Christ and they're maturing and you're bearing fruit. You've got health. And friends, when, I, when I'm praying about our church, I feel like the orchard is just getting started. Yeah, there's a lot of signs of health. There's a lot of fruit being born, but I believe that we're just getting started. And it's happening in so many different areas. But my encouragement to you and my challenge is that we take the next steps. That we do like the text says, whatever you've got, just give it to Jesus. And say, Lord, just do your work through me. With your gifts, with your time, with your finances. 
You know, this ministry, it continues. We are equipping people. We're meeting needs. We're taking the gospel to our community and to the world. And God uses the gifts, financial gifts. Like, for instance, it takes about 65000 a month. Your giving is fruit that comes from a root of a relationship. And, you know, we're going to need another building. Phase two is coming. We are saving aggressively. But it's going to be a God-sized project. But what we do is we just bring it to the Lord. If God lays it on your heart and you want to give, you want to give sacrificially, you want to give everything you have, what you can, the needs are out there. And we will see God do what we think is impossible. And tonight at our Harvest Praise Dinner, I invite all of you to come and come and listen just a few different glimpses of how God is working in our midst. But let us not forget why we are here. God intends to bear life-giving fruit through the rich relationship of Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. Please, don't forget. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just the amazing passage we've encountered today. How you have spelled it out with clarity and you've repeated it. That we might know that you intend to do your work through us. You who have done all things for us in Christ. You desire to do great things through us in Christ. So, Father, right now, for anyone who would just be willing to join me and just yield all to you. Our wills, bodies, minds, hearts, emotions. Lord, we lay it before you. And we ask, Lord, that you might accomplish your work in us for the glory of the Father. Lord, we just tell you we love you. We thank you. And may we continue to see you do the work that only you can do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.